and welcome to Found in Translation, a weekly-ish exploration of one fellow's translation of the Christian scriptures one chapter at a time. I'm Brandon Rhodes, and across the internet for me is the translator himself, Brandon Johnson. Hi, Brandon. Hi, Brandon. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. What, uh, what adult beverage is gracing your evening? Well, I have gone full fall, and I've got a hot buttered rum. Very good. Any important nuances to how you craft a hot buttered rum? The most important part being the dollop of butter that you plop on top at the end. Uh, can't do it without it. Hallelujah. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> I'm like, I'm lost in like in, in reverence for a dollop of butter. Uh, I am having a glass of a uh, Spanish wine. I think it's a Tempranillo Grenache blend from Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounded really fancy, and then maybe maybe not so fancy. It's yeah. It's better than the price tag. Was yeah, that's typical. Which may, may suggest yeah yeah, yeah like that's oh, yeah. better than I was expecting from what I paid. Yeah. Well, we are talking this week about Matthew chapter sixteen. If you haven't had a chance to read Brandon's translation, check it out in the. Uh, I think liner notes is what I should have been saying these past like fourteen, fifteen episodes. It's not show notes. Uh, yeah, check it out in the liner notes. Or is that like for a record? I mean, that's definitely what it would have been for like a CD, maybe a record too, or like, I don't know. I don't know yeah. what it is for a podcast. Yeah. Kelly asked me like what I mean by show notes. And then I realized I call what we're reading off of right now show notes. Mm. But then yeah. like, our like episode notes, episode notes. I don't know. Listeners, the, what should we text, call this? <laughs> the text thing that you can look at when you're looking at the episode on your podcast player. That's it. Anyway, yeah, read the translation uh, from the place which shall not be decisively named. Uh, and don't forget the footnotes. So go ahead and give it a read. We will be here. We've got all day. Hey, welcome back. Let's jump in. I want to start on verse four with footnote B. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you know, usually it says uh, a wicked and adulterous generation. And mm -hmm. here you've got Jesus saying uh, an oppressive and unfaithful generation demands proof. But yeah. No yeah. Yeah. That's a, I like, I think those words are more interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I, I spent some time trying to figure it out and there's another place that uses kind of the same phrasing. Yeah that I kind of bounced back and forth once I got to that one. And, um, but I think what's really worth noting is kind of the continuation of what we've seen again and again of, of the shift between there's a way to translate these things. that's just basically like, you're bad. Um, which is the only thing that I think of was wicked is like, you're bad and you need to know it. Um, and you should be punished and if you're bad and you know it clap your hands okay yeah um if there's a sound delay in your zoom call clap your hands <laughs> okay. yeah yeah they, it uh, reads uh, very plainly like within this general pattern of we're all pretty shitty 
Right. And saith the Lord. Right. Yeah. Um, word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and it's clear, you know, Jesus is not endorsing uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees here, you know, so like bad is in the ballpark, but mm-hmm. I think we could be more creative about like being more specific. And I, and I really think it is, as we see again and again, he's talking about being oppressive later. It talks about adding burdens. Like that's what we have in view here. That's, that's the way to translate this. Um, mm-hmm. And it's probably not. Yeah. It's, it's the same word that we, that, we come to this usually translated evil. Um, I'm not, I don't know why they still, some translations switch from evil to wicked here. Uh, kicks and giggles maybe. Um, but it's the poneros and it really has to do with hardship. Um, and so there, there, this is a generation that's causing hardship. That's an oppressive generation. Um, and yeah, moikaios is the word for adulterous, but that's a pretty religious technical term if I've ever heard of one. Um, so unfaithful or infidelity would work, but mm-hmm. there isn't really an adjective version of that. So unfaithful. Um, yeah. Generation demands proof. Treacherous or something like that could work too. But mm-hmm. um yeah, he's using language, one, that's not a religious technical term that makes it accessible, and two, that gets to be more specific and I think closer to the heart of what it's actually getting at here with oppressive and, and keep having to do it over and over because the tradition that, that our Bibles are translated from keep over and over doing it the other way. Yeah, and it's yeah. this is another, like the flip side of the pattern there is in your commitment to do better than religious technical language or um, kind of brutishly binary mm-hmm. language is, okay, what's, what's a better word for this? Well, what you found is actually surfacing, like you're, you're giving some space for, I mean, this might be your own bias here, but oppressive has a certain social energy to it. And so often these, the, the, the popular translations the moral language is so individual. It's so personal. Mm-hmm. There is so little, like there'll be, he'll, there's social justice in there, but it's still often the word about morality is um, conveniently pietistic instead of uh, um, more, I guess, more social yeah. as the Wesleyans emphasize. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything in this context that would be justified to use an idea that would that would apply if someone were like breaking the rules by going and watching a rated R movie and smoking cigarettes when they're not supposed to. Like that is not what's in view here. It has nothing to do with like personally breaking the rules. This is it's talking about an entire generation. This is social by nature. Yeah, um, and, and 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 plenty of those individual behaviors are oppressive like are just are received christian mm-hmm. moral reflection often skirts that so we'll say mm-hmm. you know you need to not lust after women but it's all framed within 
rule breaking, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, yeah, it's or, not because it harms the women. It's yeah. because you're breaking the rule. Yeah, it's not because it's breaching relationship. Right. Um, and, and tending to that broader social ecosystem that does include, uh, or it, it's very fundamental to, I think, what the reign of God is about, is this um, effective interior reorientation, but it takes a village <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to make that happen. It's a social reality as well as an effective interior. So making space in these moralizing words, like you can't not have these in here but making bending the notes well or at least refusing to bend the notes towards uh, individualistic yeah it's helpful and i think it takes it too like in other conversations that i've experienced if you asked the question why <laughs> yeah in the tradition i grew up in it's like well well, why is it a problem to lust? Why is it a problem to break this rule or that rule? And the answer is God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't have to understand. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe the rule is good, whether we understand it or not. Maybe we shouldn't beat someone up, whether we understand why or not. Probably a good boundary. It's good when you're a kid. Yeah. Um, or- <laughs> that doesn't mean that the explanation doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think this is trying to extract a bit of what that explanation is. And then with the unfaithful, I think a shift for me a, a few years ago was realizing that Jesus, a lot of obedience language is used, but the deeper pattern of the tradition that developed from him, even within the canon, is um, it's not so much that we're called, to, I mean, certainly for Paul, like, he doesn't talk as much about obedience to Jesus, like follow the rules. He speaks much more about faithful, be faithfulness to Jesus, mm-hmm. um, enter into the faith, the faithfulness of Jesus uh, to the divine. So enunciating that like adulterous does is, is a, it's a fine word for kind of what the energy that Matthew is getting at, but unfaithful draws us back into away from the sort of rule keeping like it's like literally one of the commandments adultery mm-hmm. right <laughs> to to this fidelity paradigm that really is the heart of if if the if the thrust of this tradition is divine union in through and with the person of Jesus then fidelity is the moral aspiration and and unfaithfulness would be are deviations. So this, I'm raising my glass to the fact that it clicks with what I, <laughs> I guess, where I've already shifted a bit, but it's such a relief to see that those word choices actually do also click perhaps better in the Bible. I'm not just having to sort of have this as a layer above it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it is faithful but I'm ching uh, to what it's saying. I don't, I don't think this is something that I'm like laying over it because I like it better. No, no, this is absolutely could, one of the Could be, I know I could have some blind spots here and implicit bias showing up that I'm not detecting on my own, but. Yeah. Well, like we said in the introductory episode are, you can't not have bias in this. You're making value. Ju- every translation makes value judgments. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we've got so much in like the back half of this chapter that I think the, the conversations I'm most interested in having with you this evening happen in the back half of the chapter. So if you're okay with it, I'd like to just jump up to verse 16. Sure. Let's go for it. Yeah. So with uh, footnote I, so Mm -hmm. there's this exchange uh, starting in 13. Jesus was arriving in the region of Caesarea Philippi when he asked his students, who do you say the son of humanity is? So they said, some say John the Submerser, others, Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say I am? Then Simeon Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, the son of the God who is alive. Mm-hmm. Now that final phrase, <laughs> uh, your footnote really elaborates on how that you're not just like kind of drawing out a phrase. You're, you're arguing that this is actually drilling home a point. It's like usually it's the living right. God. Yeah. More traditionally, it's the son of the living God, which is technically correct. Like it's just a participle that could be living or who is alive or there's different lots of different ways that you could accurately handle that participle but there's i think there is definitely more going on with the son of god title than than matthew one and and being conceived by the sacred life breath i I think it's not an accident that those are both included Mm -hmm. um but it's, it's not, this isn't trying to say that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not saying against that either. It's so it's fine to like make that connection. That's great. But so, yeah, a, sometimes we say more yeah. than we mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's contextual things at play here. So if you looked at the footnotes, like this was a, dangerous thing to say this was not a theological statement so much as a political statement yeah apart from the who is alive just this phrase son of god right is a political term yeah um it was h- how caesars referred to themselves um starting with julius caesar people said that he was divine he was a god and yep. then starting with his son augustus they started taking on, well, daddy, Julius was divine. So I'm the son of God and you should worship me as divine too. And then every subsequent generation kept that going. So for Jesus to take or accept Peter here saying that you are the son of God was making him a direct rival to Caesar. That was a dangerous thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's, it's, I think it's doing two things. It's mixing kind of Hebrew Bible, like the living one, um, the one who is kind of sentiment, but, but also maybe mocking Caesar a bit because Julius Caesar is dead by this time. So when he says, you're the son of the God who is alive, it was not only are you Caesar's rival, but you've one-upped him. Your dad isn't dead, and and his is. So you win. You're <laughs> you're the you're the top dog. I would say my dad could beat up your dad, but your dad is yeah. 
Right. It is a low blow. It um, is. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's Thanks, what's in, Josh. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm confident that that's what's in view here. And I'm not making this up like other scholars like N.T. Wright and stuff can mm-hmm. dig into yep. further of what the historical evidence for this stuff is that this is this is a big thing. And Messiah also was not widely understood to be primarily a theological term. It was a political term. So this all is a package deal. He's essentially saying you are God's chosen king over Israel. And in fact, you ought to be running everything. You should be the emperor. Yeah. Not just the king of of us Jews. Which was part of their, was part of their musings and their hopes was that when Yahweh vindicates his people, then uh, not only would the anointed one, the Messiah, become king of the Jews, but in some sense, because Israel is elevated up above the nations and the nations will flock to Zion, will flock to the temple, will flock mm-hmm. to their spiritual and some- political capital. Isaiah's yeah. references here very yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. Um, then it, it does follow that that would mean the anointed one would also, if Israel is above the nations, then the King of the Jews is indeed in some sense, the Lord of the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a weird, like, I, I want to, do a little sidebar here and say that makes me a little uncomfortable because it is it's a it's a um it kind of seems like the pyramid game it kind of seems like that scene in the hebrew bible where they're they're saying hey samuel we want a king like everybody else has um mm-hmm. and it's like so their hopes are grounded in we're going to be the top dogs. We're going to be the top of the dadgum pyramid. Yeah. And it gets interesting because in a way he's right. Yeah. But in lots of ways, he totally missed it. He misses the mark. In fact, he deviates. Uh, uh, yeah. He, he, you know, Jesus is claiming leadership. Yes. But over and over and over trying to hammer home that leadership in the divine reign is not about power over. It's about serving under everyone else. So no wonder, oh, this is good. Um, No wonder by the end of the chapter, it's look, you guys, I got to level with you. Uh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and get killed. Mm-hmm. And, they, <laughs> like, and they're just like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> did you hear your did you hear your buddy Pete there say you're the uh you're like bigger than Caesar and you're saying like Caesar's little little shithead in, in Jerusalem's gonna kill you? Like, hang on. <laughs> I'm I'm confused. I have questions. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I am gonna be king of the Jews. I am gonna be the Lord of the world, just in a completely weird way. It's mm-hmm. not going to be the pyramid game. It's not going to be the Caesar or Pharaoh or Herod or Pilate game. Screw all, or even probably what Peter had in mind. Something else. Yeah. So that lordship, though, really does involve a, a particular people. And the, historically, mm-hmm. that's been called the church. 
uh, a word that is, I believe, for the first time introduced by Matthew here in verse 18 with footnote, with your footnote K. Right. Um, but you use the word assembly. That's a, I've, I've read in so many different books, mm-hmm. like, you know, the word church isn't good enough. Like we can do better. And I've seen a few, quite a few different ways. Can you, for those who aren't as hip on, on this, the weirdness of this word, help us out. Yeah. And it is weird. And I haven't actually settled on really what I want to do with it. Um, assembly is good. And there's plenty of historical use of the word assembly. There's a whole denomination, the assemblies of God based on translating it as assembly instead of church. Um, but essentially it's, it's ek kaleo. It's an ek is out of or from and kaleo is to call so the ecclesia is the noun ver- version of that is is the the group that has been called out mm. um, essentially they've received a summons they they heard the herald in the streets saying hey i've got something to tell you and they've gone out and gathered to listen what he has to say um and they that they've assembled to do that that's what ecclesia means it's that group Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the audience but it's it's clearly here and beyond it's not just like people to come listen to someone talk for a few minutes and then go away there's more to it than that Mm -hmm. Um, there's a response involved and so trying to figure out is there a way to convey that all of that that's embedded in there that it's not just people who heard someone say hey come hear this and went out to hear it but then decided to stay decided to become part of the movement Mm -hmm. decided to start driving it forward and becoming heralds themselves and started helping others to hear it too can we do that with a word I'm not sure. Can we do it with a, sh- a short phrase? I don't know. It's it, there's a lot to it. So maybe church. Maybe church is what should do it because it at least kind of points you in the direction of what it's talking about. Assembly might be more literal. Church is a technical term, as far as I'm concerned. I know I've been playing with community, mm-hmm. uh, but like a capital C community, not just your neighborhood but like a community of people, a community of belonging or community that responds to the call, maybe hyphenated altogether or something. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard church like Ecclesia mean the elders who gather at the village gate to sort of have a huddle to figure out how to solve problems together, mm -hmm. things that are of, of concern to the village so those who have it's like been, a village council. Yeah. Uh, like a neighborhood association or a city council. Yeah. Um, I'm really, unlike the Ocascadia, the podcast I have on pause right now, um, I would often paraphrase church as neighborhood association, being fully aware that that is bringing in so much of our own anachronistic stuff, but it helps evoke mm-hmm. that sense of, we are here because we share a common place and a responsibility to it um, under a particular authority structure. And in this case, it's Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I feel like that sense of, I don't know how ubiquitous that implication of ecclesia was, but what because it connotes this sense of, it's not just us coming together as an end unto itself. It's mm-hmm. not just the gathered. I guess that's okay. But yeah, I just feel antsy every time. I would love to have a consistent phrase, if possible, for that across a given author that you're translating. But I recognize there may also be a wisdom in like what you've done with father. Like there are times, I believe even here in this chapter, where you just you just stick with the word father, but there are times mm-hmm. also where you say, you know, benefactor or defender like there's all these other providers provider yeah yeah um these sort of flavor notes that you want to um uh, bring to the surface but i don't know how to i wish there was just one (laughs) yeah and my switching to different ones with ecclesia is less Mm -hmm. about like Ooh, this one fits better here and that one fits better there. It's more about like, I just don't, I'm undecided. And I just oh. kind of pick whichever one comes to mind first. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really do want to, when I kind of go back and make another draft to clean it up a bit, I do want to uh, keep it more consistent. I'll submit to you Sacred Watershed Council uh, before. <laughs> <laughs> Moving sacred on. watershed council yeah, yes yeah that's Let's a very long phrase it's it's german yeah. uh <laughs> yeah well maybe this one we could get help maybe we should ask for input like maybe part of the reason i'm struggling with this is because i don't have the insight or that i need to do it so maybe other other voices other brains would help mm-hmm. be helpful here yeah uh if you're on our, if you're following us on a on a social thing let us know if you're not, or if you are, but you're also giving money, you should also, <laughs> if, you're, if you're also a sponsor uh, of the show, we'd love to uh, get a conversation going in those uh, comments on the Google Doc for this. So moving ahead, a whopping zero verses uh, and one whole footnote. Uh, let me scroll down to that. There we are. Yeah, so you have, after the story of, you know, Peter's like, you're the son of the God who's alive. Jesus responded to him, you should feel gratified, Simeon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but rather my divine father, like we're just saying. And I'm naming you Peter, and on this rock, I will construct my assembly, and the entrance to the place of the dead will not overwhelm it. Now, usually it's in the gates of hell. will not stand against this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for obvious reasons, we've recognized if you're just jumping into this episode, haven't listened to the probably like four other episodes where we've kind of dabbled in hell talk. Um, there's just so many different words and mm-hmm. images that are often just sort of shoehorned into uh, hell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like they're all distinct and they're not different metonyms for the same fundamental thing there. They seem to all kind of have a different, substantially different accents. What's mm-hmm. up with Hades here? And why did you, or Hades, 
Gosh. Yeah. Did you become British all of a sudden? I don't know, man. I listened to NT Wright a lot like a decade ago and some words just Ah. stuck like Hades and uh, Isaiah. Uh, (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Hades to get a little more Yankee about it. um, What's up with that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the Greek word is Hades, Hades. Um, Give me a third way of saying it. Yeah, I know. Right. It way too complicated here. Uh, but if you know anything about like Greek mythology, that's, that's not a new word, right? This is, so this is not a word that's True. specific to the Bible. In fact, it's not super common in the Bible. It happens a few times, but it's a very well-known concept in Greek culture um, and has been for at least centuries before this was written. Mm-hmm. Um, and had nothing to do with Jesus or Judaism or Yahweh had, in fact, it's, in fact, it's the name of one of the Greek gods, um, huh. the God of the underworld. Um, and then they just called the place his name. Um, so the underworld is Hades. The God of the underworld is Hades. Oh yeah. Uh, Played by James Spader in the Disney of course, but we yeah, don't talk played, about that movie. Played by Ultron. Uh, yeah. yeah. And essentially, that's just the place of the dead. It's just where all people go after they die. They cross, they get on a little boat and they cross the river sticks. And as long as they have the two coins on their eyes to pay the toll. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is how it works in Greek mythology. And they go to Hades and some are there and it's a relatively neutral experience. Some have a really nice experience. Some are tormented, but the point is that it's not a place of torment. It's not hell. Like we think of hell. It's just where everyone is after they've died. And maybe more informative is that the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint uses that same word to translate the Hebrew word Sheol, which shows up, a lot throughout the Hebrew Bible, I think probably most frequently in Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, as just the place where people are after they die. And it doesn't have anything to do with punishment. It doesn't have, and there's no distinction yeah. between people who are good or bad or people who know God or don't. Everyone, every last person is in shale after they die. Sometimes some Bibles translate it as the pit or the grave, um, trying to translate it. But I, I don't know that there is a, like a real translation other than like, it's, there's kind of that image of it being in the ground. Cause you know, you put people in a grave when they die mm-hmm. you bury them. That's what this is. This has nothing to do with the, the, modern day understanding of people who are opposed to God being tortured forever and ever and ever and ever without end in this place. This is about being dead. Period. Period. It's not as complicated as we think it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of words to just say it's about being dead. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it, it also speaks to just this discouraging pattern uh of by 
historic translations of a commitment to a particular eschatology or belief in final states of human consciousness that is actually violent to the text um, where they where they almost where they want to see it they will squish it into that shape oh can i give an example of that's even worse mm, sure yeah uh this is one i just discovered a couple of days ago uh in galatians 1 8 and 9 there's a word that appears there twice uh anathema or anathema um that most translations translate as accursed and i and i think that's a little off to after doing some research i think it's more specific than that but uh disappointingly one of the versions that i referenced the most the net new english translation translates anathema that every other translation that i looked at says accursed they translate it as condemned to hell (laughs) yeah that is commitment to a doctrine yeah it's like whoa there is no word that could even loosely be translated as hell here like they made a gigantic leap they sure wanted to make sure that's what you that's the story within which you should be reading galatians Mm -hmm. and that's really like part of why I feel like I circle around this most episodes, but it's just to me feels so good to say out loud that as we all change and develop and unfold in our own understanding of the divine, um, there comes a point where we realize that the deeper story is different than what we've been told. And whatever we think the story is, I think the common, the received story is one of, um, you know, broadly Jesus is, here to help us change our afterlife situation and uh, be really stern about purity. Uh, <laughs> uh, like that's kind of the, that's kind of the core story is evacuation. Um, and so when we realize the story is different than that, or we realize that God is bigger or better than that, we come to the text and we go, but what do I do with, with hell? What do I do with, human sin or whatever like we we see these words in the text Mm -hmm. and we feel confined by them and so step away from the text which isn't a fundamentally horrible (laughs) step i get it um but that's kind of part of the gaslighting that the tradition some the translators have given us like we've been gaslit into not knowing what the hell is actually being said here as it were Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is anyone reading the NET supposed to know that hell isn't there? It's there in front of them. Yeah, it's, it's in on the, the Bible. Page and it's on the page in front of them as they're reading the Bible. How are they supposed to know that that was a, a grossly misleading addition that the translators yeah. who were hired by that publisher were making? Mm-hmm. they can't and I, I think that that makes it feel like what i'm trying to do is that much more important to me anyway keep on it man so let's jump down to verse 22 peter having become close friends with him began to scold him fiercely 
God have mercy on you, Lord, don't let that happen to you. Now, usually mm-hmm. it's, uh, you, so the operative thing here is Peter having become close friends with him. Uh-huh. Usually it's uh, drawing close to him. Is that something to that effect? Something like that. So drawing close to him is sometimes what it is. Took him aside is one of them that I've seen. That's what it says in the NET. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Greek word is proslabominos. Uh, so it's, it's a participle to take to oneself. Um, or to take as one's companion, to take by the hand in order to lead, uh, to take or receive into one's home. There's, there's lots of different kind of nuances of how this could be communicated depending on the context, but essentially it's this idea of creating closeness with another person, whether physically or socially or emotionally or, or what have you. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes you'll see it as they're trying to get the sense of like, they're walking down the road and he pulls them aside. Like, I don't want to say this in front of everyone else. Cause I don't want to like make you look bad, Jesus, but are you sure? I mean, I don't think you know what you're saying. Um, which, I know I just said you're the son of God, <laughs> right? Like, don't make me look bad. I just put myself out there for you. Yeah. Um, Frank Dieter. Seriously, it does align with a certain pattern uh um so yeah maybe maybe he did like physically like kind of pull him over um Mm -hmm. but but i think what makes more sense is the the as as i was reading the list of various options is that a sense of having become close relationally and that that's where i was trying to draw out here peter having become close friends with him began to scold him fiercely and the the that's that's a response to him saying that he was about to be killed um to be clear and peter's like uh no don't no no i I don't want that don't let god don't let that happen you don't let that happen um I don't know what I would do if I lost you essentially mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as I think what he's saying, like, um, and that becomes important. There's, there's so many times like you probably grew up. I grew up watching on Easter, like these like specials of movies that were made. I don't know how old they were. Like the greatest story ever told King of Kings, all these mm-hmm. like movies from like the fifties or something. Um, maybe sixties. I don't know, but Jesus is extremely stoic never has any emotions whatsoever. Um, doesn't seem like he cares about anybody or anything. He's just like reading his lines. Yeah. Like I've just put up with all you assholes before I get tortured to death. So I'm just going to say this shit and yeah, uh. except, <laughs> except that would be some emotion, Brandon, yeah, yeah, that, you're would right. be, that would be irritation, <laughs> frustration. Right. Like, no, this is robot Jesus. Yeah. And um, not C-3PO robot. Like how? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that does a disservice. That all comes from the really weird British, Northern European, Germanic kind of tradition of that emotion is less than mm-hmm. only rationality is worth anything. Um in fact, at the, they were teaching that the image of God, what dis- distinguished humans from the rest of creation was that's that right. humans were rational. And they thought that's what it meant to be the image of God. 
Um, and so emotions, uh-uh, that diminished you. So if Jesus is the perfect human, if Jesus is divine, he would have zero emotions. Um, and there's even a whole doctrine of one of the attributes of what God is like. One of God's character traits is impassivity, emotionlessness. Um, that was taught in seminaries and Bible colleges for a long time. But Phil, that just feels blasphemous. I think it is. I, I think it really is. Um, I mean, it's it, also gross. <laughs> yeah. And disappointing. Mm-hmm. And so like I God think can't feel. that's gotten into our translations as people kind of assuming like Jesus isn't going to show any emotion here. He's going to keep it together because that's what higher beings do and so like earlier on in this chapter eight or nine i translated as that he held peter's mother-in-law's hand when he healed her rather than touched because that's the word is like holding or fastening on grabbing like not just like poke i'm touching you i'm touching you um, <laughs> here's a healing yeah, and it really humanizes Jesus, makes it like an emotional moment, like a, a powerful moment. And I think that's what's happening here too. Um, to the point where if we move on to the next verse, yeah, 23, uh, it seems to affect Jesus too. Gasp. Um, it's not just Peter who is getting emotional. Mm-hmm. It, it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. So the phrase that he uses, uh, footnote O in, in verse 23, um, I translate it as get out of my sight because that's kind of the meaning, but very literally it's get behind me, which many people who at least grew up in the church know, get behind me, Satan. That's a pretty famous line. Or the here. white stripes. Yeah. You're right. Um, and we realize this is, the first mention of the adversary, the Satan, Hashatan, since chapter four in the wilderness. Yeah. And what the what he says there is almost the same exact thing. Um, in chapter four, it's in Greek, hupage satana meaning go away adversary or get away. Um, And here it's hupage, the same first word. And then there's a couple of extra words between hupage and satana, opiso mu. Um, So get away behind me, Satan. So it's the same phrase, but even more emphatic. Mm -hmm. Mm. Get away to where I can't even look at you. And so it's, it is clearly a reference back to that same thing. And what do we call that section? We call it the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This is a temptation to Jesus. Like this is not, and not just like, kind of like technically Jesus was trying to persuade him to, to leave his path, but Jesus would have none of it. Like with the strength of Jesus reaction here, clearly it, tugged at jesus heartstrings like this is something he felt that was actually tempting him yes not just going through the motions and jesus is not the kind of person who like oh i just want to get out of it that's what's tempting to me he 
he's tempted by it because he cares about Peter and Peter is hurting and is scared and he doesn't want to lose Peter either. And even, you know, the rational mind that we elevate so like knows, of course, like, oh yeah, like, you know, this is all according to plan. This is how it's supposed to work. It's going to be fine. But that's not how emotions work. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, this is really the first time I believe that Jesus has said, like, he's had this hunch or this understanding for we don't know how long that probably where this is all going is being publicly executed by the occupying forces. Um, and that his own people are probably going to help out. Anyhow, he, he has this sense that this is his path. And so for anyone who's struggled with something that has had great costs or great risk to say out loud, even to someone you love and trust deeply, whether it's sexuality, needing to leave a toxic church, a divorce. When you say these things to someone, it takes real courage to say it out loud for the first time. Because you know what they might say. You know that they may bargain with the trajectory that you've, you've already internalized having to say no to. And so Jesus realizing, look, I think my path is, is going to involve getting killed. He's finally saying it out loud to his, those closest to him. And to have you know, his best buddy be like, God, no, don't let this happen to you. Like, no one, like, if you've, if you've come out in any of those manners, spiritually, sexually, or in a marriage, and to have that said to you, it pierces deep. So for him to say, like, no fucking way, <laughs> you know, like, no, get like, no, I've already fought this demon. I like I can't even I can't even go down that road with you, man. Like mm -hmm. I've already fought that demon. There's a there's a soulfulness to that. Instead of him just being grumpy with Peter, like mm -hmm. the extent of his emotions is being grumpy. Don't argue with me. Yeah, I'm yeah. Jesus. Remember? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's it's hard earned getting to that point. Yeah, he's Jesus. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, he's God. It's still pretty damn hard. He's still human. And to have your best friend say, stay in the church, stay in the closet, stay in the marriage. It's safer that way. Yeah, it's like, you think I haven't friggin' thought of that, bro? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. So thank you for trying to enunciate a bit more the um, interpersonal dynamics here that Jesus was actually fully human and had heart and was genuinely tempted mm -hmm. and it lingered in him and how hard that must've been to hear his best buddy. One of his best buddies speak the words that he had already had to renounce back in the desert. Yeah. Well, I'm tired from, <laughs> from that. Yeah. Uh, connection. There was more we probably could talk about, but why? Yeah, let's let's after that. Yeah. 
you know, we're, we're thankful as always that you're journeying with us, with Jesus, uh, on his path to the cross here. Uh, it, it means a lot to us that you're discovering with us. The easiest way to support Found in Translation is to leave us a rating or review in your podcast player of choice, especially Apple Podcasts. Uh, that makes it easier for more people to find the show. And if people find the show, that leads to the second best way to support it, which is to become a sponsor for just five bucks a month. When you do that, you'll get comment access on the translations Google Doc and the satisfaction that you are supporting exceptionally nerdy independent media. You can find the link to join the community in the show notes. The music you're listening to is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Found in Translation was produced by Perry FM on Chinook Land. Goodbye, Brandon. Goodbye, Brandon. Bye, everybody. <laughs>